Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing and all of our other podcasts over at blisterreview.com. We are once again broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, where things are still very green and the trails are in fantastic shape. Let's see, this past week, I rode Doctors without a shuttle, the Pure Way, and I rode the Mountain, so I did a little west side to happy hour to upper loop into town, and then uh, tomorrow we're going to do a little 401 pedal, I think. So yes, point is, the riding is really good all over the valley right now, so you should start making plans to come do some riding yourself here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Now, our guest today is Ellery Slater, who runs the marketing department for Pivot Cycles. Ellery was in Crested Butte this last week on a bike riding getaway with her husband, but she was nice enough to interrupt her vacation to have a long and very wide-ranging conversation with me in Blister HQ, and I knew that I wanted to get Ellery on this Bikes and Big Ideas podcast ASAP. So today, you are going to get to hear Ellery talk about her quite unusual path to becoming the head of marketing for Pivot. We get into some of her takeaways about the bike industry in this time of COVID. That's something we've talked a bit about more from the bike shop point of view. And today, we're going to get the perspective of someone coming from a specific brand. And so then after Ellery and I talk about certain current trends, we're gonna talk about where she thinks the bike industry is going to be going from here. Then we get into talking a bit about bike pricing and the notion of entry level pricing. And we wrap up by talking a bit about the notion of women's specific gear and how that relates to female participation in mountain biking. So that is what we have on tap for you today. And let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Ellery Slater. Well, Ellery, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, how am I today? Uh, I'm great. It's a super sunny day in Boulder, Colorado, which answers your second question, where am I? Uh, so I live and work in Boulder, Colorado, and I spend one week out of the month at Pivot's headquarters in Tempe, Arizona. Got it. And you and I just had a really interesting sit down in person conversation in our blister headquarters yeah where i think we ended up talking about i don't know we kind of touched on 150 different topics i would sort of set the over under that way and so you know it's interesting we don't actually tend to talk to many marketing people on our podcast it tends to be product designers and that type of thing but you are not exactly what I would call a typical marketing person. And the fact that we touched on so many of these topics, I was like, okay, that's it. Like we're bringing you back and coming on. And uh, that's what we're doing here today. So here we are. <laughs> well, th thank you for the invitation. And I'm already excited to see the caricature of the typical marketing person. <laughs> well, I think I might maybe just sneak out of the room quietly on that one. But um <laughs> You know, hey. Yep, I get it. It's like every single profession has the really good folks and then the less good folks. Yep. 
No, for that's sure. Just, that's a fact. That's, that's for just sure. a fact. So um, whether we're talking about medicine or the, the, the legal system. So anyway, that's, that's, you know, let's say that's all I mean. Yep. Perfect. Got it. <laughs> cool. Um, I want to talk a little bit to get us going uh, just about your background. This will be a bit of a trajectory uh, to ultimately get us to like how you linked up with Pivot. But yeah, let's go way back and just talk to us a little bit about where did you grow up and what were you into growing up? I grew up in uh, rural Washington state, so born and raised in the PNW, and uh, that probably had a really strong imprint on where I was attracted to be as an adult. My parents were both public educators, so I had this beautiful luxury of them dragging me around the mountains. There was like a radius from our home that extended into British Columbia and over into Montana, down into Oregon and Idaho. And I just got to traipse around the mountains uh, as a kid. And then I didn't leave the state of Washington until I graduated from from college with a degree in economics, the specialty in agricultural marketing. And I took a job as a commodities trader. So this was in the, (laughs) I know, Um, this was in the uh, mid, late late 90s, late 90s. God, I just just dated myself. And uh, I grew up in the agricultural heart of Washington state. And NAFTA was a rising economic influence in the region. Um, I'm bilingual. I speak Spanish. I was like, slam dunk. I'm going to get a degree in in, uh, in economics with a specialty in ag marketing. And I'm going to set about forming all of these export agreements between agricultural producers I knew growing up in my backyard and uh, and the rest of Latin America. And somewhere along the path to that, you know, you know, when you're 19 and 20, you have your entire life trajectory well-determined. And somewhere in the middle of that well-determined trajectory, I got a commodities trading internship in the Midwest and it was like complete crack. I was totally hooked. Um, huh. And so uh, I went to work uh, this yeah, this is my career ancient history. My first job out of college, I traded grain in the Pan American division of a large international agricultural company, and my first job was split between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, Louisiana. So I moved from Washington State to to Louisiana at the age of twenty one. <laughs> my God. So uh, yeah, so that's my that's my ancient career history. Uh huh. Um, and it was super exciting. So I would say that the 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 thread of truth in every job I've ever had is I have a sincere love of adventure. So that would that maybe that's the thread that ties me back to that job. Um, but march forward many years, and I got geographically homesick being in the Midwest, relocated to Boulder, Colorado, about twelve years ago, and uh, went to graduate school. I have a master's degree in teaching and learning theory, uh, with a specialty in in finance and marketing. And I ended up deciding that the classroom was not the place for me. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And that's when I started marketing uh, as a freelance small business consultant and hmm. learned every element of marketing from a very like grassroots way. Just you just learn. You just you just say, yeah, I can do that. And then you figure it out along the way. So wait a second. Going back to grad school. Yeah. Was the intention to start teaching like business and finance? Yeah, absolutely. I really had a passion for, you know, commodities trading was like 
as close to pure economics as you could get, right? Like huge international commodities, laws of supply and demand. And, and, and there was just something like you understood markets, like you had to be a, you, you had to learn and study markets. And that was an early imprint on me from a career standpoint. And you jump forward and I still had a strong interest in business, but I also just sort of felt like, wow, most people don't understand money at all. <laughs> like they, they don't understand money, they don't understand markets. For whatever reason, that was something that that really interested me. And I mentioned earlier that I came from this family where public education was basically like the, the family business, like everyone. And so I just thought, well, you know, I'm sure my subconscious somewhere told me to continue to be loved and accepted by this people. I better get a degree in education of some sort. And mm-hmm. uh, yes. And so I actually did. I got a master's degree, a secondary. And so it would have been high school level at CU Boulder. Uh, and all of the emphasis was on studying the U.S. standards for teaching finance, business, and econ. But then you decide, maybe not the classroom, I'm kind of interested in this entrepreneurship thing. Right. And that's when you start kind of identifying, like, turns out there's a lot of businesses that could probably use some help in terms of how they're marketing their business. Exactly. And at first, it w- yeah, that's exactly what happened. So... It, it was like I basically just blindly put out there. I think I want to start working with small businesses. What's my, you know, what's my core skill set? What can I offer them? And at the time, honestly, I don't think even I knew. Really, it was just sort of like, mm-hmm. like blindly stumbling into it. But I, it, it would, you know, conversations will happen with. Uh, with your friends and your acquaintances and we would be talking about their businesses and I would say, well, what about that? And they would go, oh, I didn't think about that. And so then another friend would go, hey, you should really like tell them that they should pay you money for the advice you're giving them. So, I mean, it was literally, (laughs) it was literally like that organic. Um, And so uh, there was lots of starts and stops, trials and errors, but I I can honestly say that's the best way to learn. Uh, That is the best way to learn. Uh, so I did a lot of projects, a lot of different projects for a lot of different clients over a six to eight year period. And I'm sure what we're, we're waiting for is like, how do bikes figure in there? <laughs> yeah, I was buying a lot of bikes at that time and riding them a lot. And along the way, I actually had a couple of different projects. The first one was pro bono, and then it paid after that in in the cycling industry. One was with a race promoter, and then I was actually paid like an hourly wage to work at a high-end mountain bike dealership in Boulder, Colorado, helping them build the footprint of their marketing program. And that was where I really started to see inside the industry. And then over the next three to four years, I continued to have a, a really, really full client deck in all kinds of different verticals. And that allowed me to, you know, get become what I would call a, a deep generalist in the words of in the mark in marketing land, because uh, I could have a really diverse set of projects, but I never really lost my connection uh, to cycling. I'm wondering if you have a good sense of this. I, I don't think I really do right now. Like, it seems like there's definitely a story you know, that a lot of us would be familiar with that certain people working in marketing or in any aspect of say a, the bike industry or the ski industry, kind of the outdoor industry are people that have just been in that industry for kind of a long time and ended up moving into different positions kind of as they stay in the industry. Do you have a sense of how many people 
are sort of like these deep generalists currently in, say, marketing departments around the bike industry? That's a great question. So I definitely, as I've as I've worked with, you know, different colleagues, different companies, I would say that actually you hit the nail on the head with term with in perspective one archetype. Um, and it's a valuable archetype in the industry. And that is someone that is not a generalist, they're a specificist, right? And so maybe they are a media specificist, meaning they've been riding bikes, reviewing bikes. Uh, they maybe came from a, a media site or a magazine. And so there were many years where those relationships were marketing, right? There was a, mm-hmm. a pre digital era in every industry. And so that was marketing. Uh, and so those people then became marketers because the dominant tone was the importance on things like the copy that we write, the way that we can leverage our relationships for reviews. Th- that was a really large part of marketing. Uh, and so there is that archetype of someone that's been in the industry a long time and they have a lot of brand knowledge and they know the right people and you know they're, mm-hmm. they're in the right clubs. And so they can make those connections. Your question specifically about generalists, what I see happening more and more is that as marketing as an industry has like continued to pick up speed uh you know there's a term in marketing that that uh i was most recently watching some of the live stream from the can lions creative festival and they were talking Mm. about marketing velocity meaning the rate of change in marketing as an industry and it's astronomical like it outpaces the rate of change in the bicycling industry And so one of the ways that I have seen some companies basically combat marketing velocity is to reach, in some cases, reach maybe across organizations in the cycling industry. So into maybe a larger company and take someone who's been on the marketing staff and say, hey, your company is a little bit ahead of us in terms of their marketing knowledge. We're going to bring you over to our company, but we kind of stay within the cycling archetypes. And then I've seen other companies say, uh, we're going to reach outside of cycling to another company, maybe in the outdoor industry that has maybe embraced their marketing velocity a little faster than we have. And we're going to bring someone laterally from a manager's or director level position from outside of the industry into ours. And we want to import their knowledge and we want to import their skill set. And the both of those present different challenges to a brand. Um, I think that probably where I came from as a marketer uh, for a a large brand is part of how I approach the perspective. Um, the missing link in our conversation about my career path is in early, early 2016, that same high-end mountain bike dealer in Boulder that I'd been doing projects for almost 10 years ago, uh, their former employees called and said, hey, the shop's for sale, we pick you. So uh, I was like, okay, great. And so I came home and I said to my husband, I was like, don't kill me, we're buying a bike shop. And he's like, I'm going to kill you. And I said, I know, uh-huh. I know. So uh, I was a deep- But spoiler deep, alert, <laughs> he did not. He did I'm not kill you. I'm still here. Uh, I'm uh-huh. still here. I'm still wearing a wedding ring. Both of those are, I consider, <laughs> verifiable miracles. Um, uh-huh. And we bought a bike shop. And so for the- Three and a half years before I came to Pivot, I was a mountain bike dealer in Colorado. So that was jumping (laughs) off of the deep end as a marketer into now really, really understanding, let's say, the customer journey. Uh, And I wasn't working with one brand. I was working with every brand in the store. And I was taking everything that I had learned with 
you know, dozens of other clients and projects. And like, I had my own baby to see, hey, let's take the best of what I think I did and apply it to this business and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I built a relationship with Pivot. So I think that brings us up to one of the things I wanted to do here, and um, which is just talk a little bit about kind of the current bike industry yeah. and some of the trends we're seeing. And, you know, I, I have had you know, Simon Stewart on, uh, and getting his perspective on some of these as, you know, a bike shop owner. And I think to have, uh, somebody from a brand coming on and sort of get the sense of what you're seeing that, that was kind of, well, one of the things I wanted to do today, in addition to, you know, getting through some of your pretty interesting and not so typical background. So, Let's talk about the present, right? Our present situation. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to start with is I wondered if you could help us get a better sense on any specific category of bicycle. And I mean totally broadly, beyond mountain biking. So we can be talking about road, you know, or e-bikes or gravel bikes or mountain bikes. Where are we seeing like the most movement? Or are we in a world where it's like, if there's a thing with wheels attached to it, it's just being sold right now? If we had had this conversation in January of 2020, pre-COVID, and you said, Ellery, what's the category? And you asked me that question. I would have said, it's really important to talk about how the gravel category is affecting uh, bike development consumers, retailing. It's a huge growing sector. It would have, you know, I would have said it's very, very important to discuss that and what what were the innovations that made it gravel and why is calling it a gravel bike actually like not doing service to what the bike actually can, mm. can do for you. In today's world, I heard, uh, I was speaking to a dealer in Michigan yesterday who used the phrase, there's no bad inventory right now. Right, like that $30 kid's helmet that was first put in a box in 2015 and sat on the back shelf because it was the ugly color with the cartoon that's not cool anymore and it's got dust on it. Like that thing is getting full retail at some dealers right now. So, and there certainly has been a lot of talk both in the industry and outside of the industry uh, about are we looking at another bike boom Forbes printed an infinitely interesting article maybe eight weeks ago with a historical retrospective on the 1970s and people waiting in line for bikes in the 1970s and like what fueled that. So there is a lot of introspection and retrospection in the industry right now about whether or not we're at the dawn of another bike boom because that has affected every category. You kind of gave us a teaser there about how you think that the term gravel bike isn't doing that piece of equipment justice. So now I kind of want to hear you say more about that. (laughs) So gravel bike, we're really all very comfortable hearing that, right? Uh, It implies a certain use necessarily, you know, uh, that it can go on gravel roads, basically. (laughs) Uh, It can go on gravel roads instead of regular roads, except there's, there's so much about that bike that makes it so much more utilitarian, right? Like, they're, they typically all have disc brakes, uh, wider tires, 
uh, like more relaxed geometry or longer wheelbases. Like it's really the SUV or the all purpose rig of the bike industry. And so when they first started being marketed more, more broadly outside of iconic models like the Salsa Warbird that were associated with gravel racing, then everybody kind of clamored to say like, what word are we going to use? Gravel bikes stuck, but I also saw people saying, well, should we call them adventure bikes? Should we call mm-hmm. them like, uh, I think alternative surface bikes was another category I saw <laughs> people work with. And the reality is they're just super, super competent. If I were going to buy a commuter rig, I would get a gravel bike. It's just yeah. more stable than a road bike. But also I don't have a hardtail. I have a full suspension bike and a gravel bike because on baby butt smooth single track, I ride my gravel bike. So uh, the, the applications for using the bike and just how much stinking fun they are, uh, gravel bike just doesn't quite tell you everything that thing can do. One of the things that you and I talked about in Blister Headquarters, I kind of want to have you go over some of this again here, but just as we are again, looking at kind of the, just the bike industry landscape or maybe a shifting landscape Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Talk about one or two of the main things you're seeing right now that are either cause for concern or sort of a, you, that you think are signaling a bit of a sea change here. What do you got? So not just in cycling, um, but if you consider that bikes are part of, you know, the consumer goods landscape. We've seen probably two to two and a half years worth of innovation in terms of e-commerce and the digital channels that brands are using to reach consumers. We've seen probably two years worth of innovation in like a three-month window, just in the last 90 days. And so whether we can call it a sea change or not, it is indisputable that the rate of change in terms of how brands are reaching consumers and specifically talking about whether or not we're selling direct to consumers, uh, click to brick, what is the user experience in the shopping cart look like? How are brands now partnering with dealers in a world where there's been, a, there was a dramatic and still is a dramatic increase in online sales. Uh, so I think one of the sea changes that is coming is that there's an acceleration. This kind of goes back to the whole marketing velocity term. There, There's an acceleration in consumer goods. Like people that buy bikes, they're not conditioned as consumers only by the bike industry, right? Like they also buy shaving cream and shoes and broccoli mm-hmm. and toilet paper and everything else, right? And so those user experiences that they're having and the way that they are becoming accustomed to meeting brands, engaging with brands, discovering products and buying products, consumers are being conditioned by the marketplace in general. And so we can't ignore that as cycling companies. And so I think that there is really a push to accelerate, to, to pick up the pace of the marketing velocity, especially if we talk about d- digital marketing and some of the sub-elements of digital marketing uh, in the cycling industry. And, and it's a broadly misunderstood term in a lot of cases, what digital marketing is, because it's like 10 or 12 or 15 different things. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. I think that we'll see uh, cycling companies really have to address their own marketing velocity, particularly in a digital environment, to keep up with what other consumer goods are doing. And then the second one is how sophisticated will we be? How seriously we will we take the question of is this the next bike boom? Right, because we can offer a lot of pla- as brands, and I'll speak very frankly. As a brand, I could offer a million platitudes to my dealers and go, "This is the beginning of the next great American bike boom," but that would be not a not sophisticated thing to say. There's no doubt that there are millions of people in the United States that have gotten on a bike for the first time in a long time. They've I've witnessed it firsthand uh, at my local shop. They've pulled a bike out of the garage that they haven't ridden in a couple of years, and they've brought it in for service. And now they're bike back on that bike, and absolutely, un, you know, not unprecedented, but historical highs in terms of sales in the industry. But I think the really key question is like, who's who's sticking with it, right? Mm-hmm. What can we do to influence whether or not they're sticking with it? What has their experience been if they're new riders? We shouldn't be naive and assume that now that they're on a bike, they're in love with a bike and they're here to stay. And all of these people that bought entry-level mountain bikes in the last 90 days are going to be back next summer for an expert-level mountain bike. Uh, So I think something that's incredibly relevant in the conversation right now is that we should, I think we should talk more and more sophisticatedly about whether or not we have new consumers what are we going to do to retain them and what are they experiencing if they are new cycling consumers and so that those are some like let's call them big macro questions for like totally the entire bike industry writ as large as possible absolutely then there's the question i guess of like how you are specifically thinking about that at pivot and i guess i'm curious like do you actually think it is it like no these are big macro questions and the the answers are going to kind of be the same regardless of the brand. Or do you actually think that like if we're talking about Pivot's answer to some of the questions you've presented is going to look very different to say some manufacturers that are bigger than Pivot, some that are much smaller than Pivot. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. You're, I hear you asking like, if you take those macro level questions now apply it at a micro level to your brand, what are you thinking? Yeah. It's interesting. It's funny to talk about price, right? And it kind of almost feels icky to talk about price. Uh, but we have to talk about price to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if we talk about, you know, I, I kind of mentioned like, are is an entry a mountain biker buying an entry level mountain bike? And we can define the price parameters around entry level mountain bike is pretty broad. Right, I I got a a mailer in the Sunday paper because I love an actual physical Sunday paper for Target, and they had a one hundred and fifty dollar mountain bike. I mean, it was called a mountain bike, and the price point was one hundred and fifty dollars. Huh. So is that entry level, right, or is entry level <laughs> two thousand eight hundred and ninety nine dollars? Yep. Right. There's a very big gap between 150 and $2,899. And so if I'm thinking about my brand and I look at the entry point into my brand and price point, I have to be very realistic about who is the core consumer for our brand. Who do we want to be the core consumer of our brand? Meaning 
What do we want in terms of characteristics of loyalty? What do we want in terms of characteristics of valuing technical expertise? Like who are the consumer personas for a pivot? And some of the ways that we're going to answer questions about people that have bought entry-level mountain bikes, wherever they are, I can't ignore the fact that as big as the leap is from 150 to 2,800, the leap from 2,800 to 5,000 is even bigger. And it's super uncomfortable to talk about price, right? Because my brand has been panned on other media sites many times by trolls, you know, calling us the dentist bike. And yet I think there's something empowering about talking about it transparently. So, yeah. you know, we have core value commitments to, to quality and to innovation. And those are immutable at Pivot. Like they're not going anywhere. And part of what we'll be doing in the coming year is telling deeper stories about what quality looks like. Like what is in a Pivot? Um, what does innovation look like? Like what have we accomplished at Pivot? Because I cannot make assumptions about how many quote unquote entry level mountain bikers are going to become people who stick around right now in the immediate decision making that I can do in the research that I can do at our brand. I would, I would find it very, very, very hard to know where to go to find out who's going to advance to the level of like what we call a prosumer. What do you know about the volume that is done on mountain bikes that cost $150 and are sold at Target. The NPD group does a great job of bringing us as much sales statistics as we possibly can. And one of the things that they break out is like the independent bicycle dealer versus all other channels. However, it's very hard to come up with a unit number because the price point differences are so broad that if you look at it from a top line revenue perspective, it kind of makes it look like, oh, wow, like IBDs that, that sell complete bikes have, you know, more than, you know, 45% of the revenue or whatever. And don't, I, did, I just made that number up for your audience. Like I haven't looked at those numbers in the last 15 to 30 days. However, what I don't see is I really don't see sales statistic disaggregated by MSRP, right? So like bikes, I, I today would don't have that information at my fingertips to say like uh, X number of bikes sold at, at this price point versus this price point. Um, although we can see across, you know, like what do other brands doing? What are they reporting? And the NPT group reaches into the reaches into the register at dealers to get some of that sales information. And it's super, super, super valuable. Um, I think someone who I, I learned a lot about this way of thinking and what I mean by this way of thinking is thinking about like what brings someone from their first mountain bike to being a, you know, a consumer that we would call a prosumer. At the uh, People for Bikes, Dr. Jen Boldry, who is the lead researcher at People for Bikes, I frequently am like, you are super smart. Can I buy you lunch? I just want to ask you questions. <laughs> and she's always really cool about it. And one of the things I remember her saying to me once was I'm so, so interested in what is happening for people at the moment where they consider themselves a cyclist. And like, there's like, what, what brought you into cycling? What made you become a cyclist? And I know she's asking a deeper question, right? And the answer is not my gym was closed because of COVID. 
right? That's not it. And, and so, and so that is the thing that I'm talking about when I talk about marketing, digital experiences, consumer experiences. What is the consumer experience for someone who's bought a bike in the last 90 days? The answer to, are you a cyclist? Is this a bike boom? Will you ever buy a pivot? lies somewhere in the answer to the question that I learned from Doc B like three years ago, which is like, I'm so interested in what is the moment where someone is like, how did, how, like, what made you become a cyclist, right? Because yeah. there's difference between owning and riding a bike and being a cyclist. And I would say that 100% of my consumers at Pivot consider themselves cyclists, not just someone that owns a bike and rides a bike. I want to talk a little bit, give you a chance to talk a little bit about like Pivot and pricing. It's really interesting if if our owner and CEO Chris Kokalis were on the call, he is a, 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 a very, he is an encyclopedia of knowledge about bikes and particularly about the manufacturer and materials integrity of carbon mountain bikes. And I always tease him because he, he frequently in a podcast he'll say like we're a bike company not a marketing company and I'm like oh but he's like no well, like. <laughs> No offense, but like, it's not marketing, right? It's real. And I'm like, no, I know it's real. You're right. It's real. And when we say, what's the thing that's real, uh, you know, the key differentiating factor in a pivot is the frame. You know, you and I talked about the fact that we can look across the competitive landscape and we could take three or four bikes that we consider equivalent from different manufacturers. And when you start to look at them, you know, you have to say, well, what does this manufacturer make and what do they bolt on? And there is certainly some nuance and some talent in specking a complete bike, knowing which are the most exceptional parts to get the maximum performance out of the bike. But the thing that Pivot does very differently is how we build our frames and our tolerances and our quality control procedure and our expectations for the quality of, of our homogenous carbon frame is they're very high standards. And so it's over the years I've heard Chris, I'm sort of like, I mean, I'm kind of standing in, in, in Chris's playground or his sandbox right now. Over the years, we've started to talk a little bit more about what that process looks like. However, it's enough to say that, you know, we're the company that when the company, when the, when our manufacturing partners call and say like, will you accept the tolerances? Our answer is, well, are they pivot tolerances? And so our product testing and quality control procedures are, I would say, literally second to none. And we're just now getting to the phase in, we're at a flexion point in our brand where we're now realizing that that's not like a secret recipe anymore. Like we used to guard it like the secret recipe for Coke, right? Like no, it's nobody knows what what's in there, right? And we took it that seriously because we really believed in what we were doing. But our brand is at a flexion point where now we know it's really imperative to begin to tell our carbon story and to begin to tell some of our innovation story. And so that's something that that you'll see coming from Pivot and and more and more about what we do with our frames. So when I talk about what's special about our frames, the top line item is we make one kind of carbon. That's it. Like that really is, I think what people are experiencing when they say like, oh, the pivot, you know, it's the dentist bike, like they're expensive, but we only make one grade of carbon. We only make one exceptional grade of high modulus carbon. That's it. A pivot frame is a pivot frame is a pivot frame. And there's no two levels of carbon. There's not the best carbon and then the other carbon, 
or, you know, whatever, however different brands are positioning their different materials options. There is one materials option at Pivot, and that is uh, that is our highest quality carbon. So in other words, there are, I think it's typically three different build kits available on Pivot bikes. And so you can choose a different build kit, but what you can't do is choose whether you want the highest end or most expensive frame or the middle of the road frame. The frame is the frame. Then it's just about what do you want to bolt to that frame? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So you, there is no option to be like, well, can I have the lower end frame and the more expensive drivetrain? Like that's not a, that's not a thing at Pivot. So there are, there's three price calf classifications um, and they're, that whether anyone thinks the nomenclature is confusing or not is necessarily up for debate, but there's three levels of builds, race, pro, and team. And within those three levels of builds, you always have a Shimano option and a SRAM option. And no matter what you wrap around it, if you're looking at the race, pro, and team builds for, let's say, a Firebird, the, we're building every single one of those bikes with the exact same Firebird frame. Something else we talked about on this subject of like uh, frame quality is uh, something that we're just now beginning to talk more about, um, and that's ride tuning. The way that I like to describe it to people is we don't just build a prototype. Let's say we pick medium and large their prototype sizes, and we you know come up with all the engineering wizardry in the numbers behind building those prototypes. What you know the the torsional strength numbers and the carbon layup and and, and the, the the geometry for the bike. So I'm using very layman's terms. And then say, okay, that's our prototype, right? Okay, approved. Now let's scale the geometry of the bike extra small through extra large. That would be one way of building the line, the size lineup. At Pivot, we say, okay, let's build a small switchblade. Okay, now let's build a medium switchblade. Now let's build a large switchblade. So it's as close to a custom tuned ride experience as you can have in the frame where we say like, what should the characteristics and geometry of a bike for the average small rider be? In what ways does it need to be different from the large rider? And it's not just size. Right. Sometimes it's like, how much does the frame flex? Where do we need it to be stronger in other points and not in others, in addition to the geometry? So just conceptually, ride tuning to us means, all right, everything's going to be the highest grade of carbon, but let's build these bikes one at a time. What are the optimal characteristics for a, like, for instance, like I said, a small switchblade versus the optimal characteristics for a large switchblade? And we refer to that as ride tuning. Uh, and we stand behind the philosophy of human-specific design um, and that there are unique characteristics all along that spot, that size spectrum. Another thing I want to ask you about is just the whole topic of sort of women-specific and what your thoughts are on that maybe <laughs> just in general. And I don't know if it's the same answer, but if it's not you know, what is kind of Pivot's take on that question of quote-unquote women specific? Uh, Jonathan, I think that's actually, an, that's a great question. 
And uh, I think it closes the loop between how we started the conversation, which is like, Ellery, tell me about this very weird resume that you have and how you came to be like, you know, running marketing at Pivot Cycles. And then we talked about innovation and the marketing landscape and the industry landscape. So I think that's a great way to like close the loop on all those different pieces of our conversation. Uh, the women, the issue, the, the question, I was trying to decide, I just started three sentences. Uh, the question of, <laughs> so obviously I have a lot to say about this, of women's specific design. In part, you've heard me answer that from our brand's perspective, right? And it's that we believe in human specific design. So when I was uh, helping customers and clients uh, at the dealership that I owned, and a woman would come in and she would say, I'm looking for a woman specific bike. The question I would always ask her is, what is it specifically about the bike that you would like it to be for a woman? Like, what are you looking for it to do? And she's like, I most times, 95% of the time, the answer I got was, I don't know. I just assumed it would fit me better. Or I just assumed it would be a, you know, a better ride for me. And so then I would have to rip the Band-Aid off by saying the exact same thing. And this was even before I, you know, I came to pivot and I would say, actually, the funny thing is the bike has no idea what parts you have. None of these bikes know what parts you have. It knows more or less how tall you are. It knows more or less how much you weigh. And then it know, it, it might know a few other things like, are you long-waisted, short-waisted, short legs, long legs, that kind of thing. But that's all it knows. And so really... I really think what you're looking for is the bike that gets you the best experience, the best fit, responds to the responds to what your greatest concerns are as a cyclist. Do you want to climb? Do you want to descend? Do you want to feel more stable? Do you want to feel more confident? Do you want to feel faster? So that answer that I would give a consumer standing on the floor of my bike shop is effectively the philosophy that Pivot has, which is bikes are designed for humans. And so our ride tuning, we put money where our mouth is when we talk about that. Um, and I don't believe that bikes know what parts you have. So that tells me that is women's specific design a relevant or irrelevant conversation? Absolutely not. Um, year before last, uh, someone in the industry, in the media, asked me for a, a quote uh, on the quote unquote rise and fall of women's specific design. And I was like, I actually have nothing to say based on that question because I haven't seen a rise or a fall. I've seen a rise. I've seen some people opt out. I've seen other people try to redefine. Um, and I've certainly been involved in a lot of conversations about women and specifically female mountain bikers. And what I see is that in general, female consumers are pretty confused as we all try. And when I say we all, I mean brands, my competitor brands at Pivot. As we all try to throw elbows to say what's best for female identifying riders. Right? Like it needs to be built from the ground up and designed specifically for women. No, it doesn't. You know, what is Ellery? Well, Ellery says it doesn't know what parts you have. And then there's other companies that say, but it needs to reflect your culture. And so we, we need to specifically request, reflect a specific culture for women. And then there are other brands that say, no, women should be able to choose whatever the heck they want. Like, here's other colors. What do you like? Uh, and so I actually think uh, 
that as an industry, and I know this is kind of a bold thing to say, but I know I have some some colleagues out there that agree with me. As an industry, we just shoot ourselves in the foot over and over and over again by throwing elbows with one another to try and define what perspective we should have for female identifying writers. And it actually, I believe, and based on some research that myself and some other colleagues were involved in called the Women's Off-Road Cycling Congress, we gathered hundreds of pieces of first-person qualitative data where female identifying mountain bikers basically said the same thing. They were like, it's just super confusing. Like you go into a shop, you ask for a women's specific bike. The guy says you don't need it. You go into another shop. The guy says you absolutely need it. The guy or girl. Um, And so today what I believe is that as an industry, we could do better by defining the necessary technologies that improve the ride experience and then finding ways vis-a-vis marketing to create access points for female identifying riders to brands where they can get the information that they need intelligently to make a decision about what kind of bike is best for them. And you would think that that's obvious. You would think that's super obvious and that we would have already done that. And yet from that research that we've done in the Women's Off-Road Cycling Congress starting in 2017 through the spring of 2019, we have plenty of evidence to say that as an industry, we haven't figured out exactly how to do that yet. Very well said. And and yet I'm still going to treat everything you've just said as just a incredibly articulate teaser because we're, I'm going to make you come back and we're going to talk more specifically about women's involvement and the notion of women specific. And I think you've just done a really good job of kind of in effect, presenting like what what is the actual issue? What are the different debates and conversations and approaches? And um, yeah, so I'm gonna let you go now, but I am also gonna make you come back, and we're gonna we're gonna revisit this one for sure. Is that is that, no, that, <laughs> is that, that okay? That's, no, that sounds great because we're out of time today, and like I would hate to miss the opportunity to draw my favorite comparison on this topic, which is. We'll have to set aside another podcast to try and draw the comparison between a female identifying rider trying to choose a high-end full suspension mountain bike and a male identifying consumer trying to get like really high potency eye cream at a, at a, at a department store. Like the consumer journeys are very similar. And uh, anyway, I'm being tongue in cheek, but uh, yes, we can have that conversation because I do think it's a really important one. Ellery, thank you. Um, it was great seeing you in CB. It was Really good to have this conversation. And uh, yeah, we're going to be doing it again sometime. Well, thanks, Jonathan. I'm really, really grateful for the invitation and looking forward to the next time we get to visit. Take care. Talk to you soon. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to Ellery for the conversation. Thanks to Jared Farley for producing this episode. And if you are enjoying these Bikes and Big Ideas conversations, we would very much appreciate it if you would leave us a nice little five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. And if you do, you will push us one step closer to making our first listener appreciation slash blister crash course video, which you can learn more about in episode number 22 of Bikes and Big Ideas. And I promise, and I promise, that video is going to be well worth the 30 seconds it takes you to leave us that five-star rating. Okay, until next time, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. 
and we will talk to you again next week. <laughs>